Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Noreen, how was your week? My week was good. I, I felt really well this week. I've cut down on practically all my medications. I've had a few instances of kind of allergy related stuff could be that I've been starting to eat peanut butter <laughs> but which I'm allergic to but I've done some a couple of days of fexofenadine but apart from that yeah getting you know long walks doing lots of activities with the kids lots of baking lots of cooking yeah we'll see so how was your week well my week was actually quite good yeah I've spent two years waking up and as soon as I moved my head I'm blinded by the headache and I have just had 10 consecutive days I think without that head pain I'm not getting complacent I still wake up every morning and very very gently look around to see if I'm going to get the pain but it's the longest period that I've not had that pain for and that's really nice that's not to say that all of my other symptoms have gone I've had bad stomach symptoms I've got the constriction in my throat I've got the swollen tongue it feels like it's more that it feels allergic, whereas I don't necessarily know that the headache was allergic. I don't know. I mean, I I say I'm well, but I uh, for me a lot of it now is depending on how dizzy I feel. So if I don't feel too dizzy, I'm having a great day. Um, my tongue does swell up in the morning, and then that's normal. I'm losing lots of hair, but uh, apart from that, that's fine. But like I say, I'm sure as soon as I get another virus, my immune system will just go nuts again and I'll feel very unwell. But that feels like kind of par for the course now. Yeah. So we, we've we discussed a little bit this over the weeks and months and days and we, we have our own ideas about what might be the mechanism behind long COVID. So this week we spoke to Lavanya Visabad Parathi who is a microbiologist and immunologist specialising in looking at T-cells and T-cells in infectious diseases. She's currently a postdoctoral fellow at Northwestern in the United States. And she has seen a remarkable number of long COVID patients and really done some quite interesting studies into them. Her most recent study, which I think is still up for peer review, is uh, looking at her hypothesis about what could be the mechanism behind long COVID. You're doing some really exciting work. You're about to have a paper that's due to come out soon. And it's specifically about uh, long COVID and T-cells. And uh, we'd love to talk to you about it. When I came into this, what I wanted to kind of, um, I came in with a hypothesis, right? Because I think that in general, it's important to have a hypothesis before you enter into a scientific project. A lot of people, uh, especially with COVID, have been kind of approaching this like, okay, let's just do all these experiments and figure out what's going on. Let's do a broad survey of things and then let the data tell us what's happening, which in a way is good. But I think part of the problem with that has been the data has been so heterogeneous that it's been difficult to make conclusions. 
so I personally kind of like to do my science coming in with a hypothesis. And so the hypothesis that I had here was that long COVID patients seem to have this constellation of symptoms that were resembling some kind of immune disturbance, right? So I thought that if we actually looked at underlying T-cell responses to the virus, we could find a pattern that differentiated these patients from those who completely recovered after COVID. Because the persistent symptoms to me, as an immunologist, it kind of screamed, let's look at the T-cell response. But I didn't know what I was going to find. Initially, what I tried to do was to say, if we have all of these different viral proteins and we can subdivide T-cells into subsets that are looking at memory responses versus effector responses versus all of these other responses, do we see a difference between these patient groups? And to my surprise, the answer was yes. It's complicated because T-cells are complicated, but what essentially we found was that there's a long-lasting antibody response against a nucleocapsid protein in long COVID patients, which generally does not persist in healthy convalescents. So that was one thing. So what that might mean is that there's a corresponding T-cell response which can inform that long-lasting antibody response. And so that was one of the first things that I looked at, uh, looking at T follicular helper cell responses. So these are a subset of T cells that help B cells produce um, high affinity antibodies against the virus. And what we found was that there was a big difference in the level of activation in this in these cells in response to various uh, proteins, especially the nucleocapsid protein. And so that kind of said to me that there is a persistent stimulation that's possibly existing in these long COVID patients because of viral infection that's not existing in the healthy COVID convalescent. So that was that was one part of what we found. Is that the thing that's suggestive of a chronic viral infection? It's one of them to me. I want to be very careful about saying that because I think that in the field, a lot of people are still unconvinced that that's happening. But there are a lot of reasons why I believe that it could be a real lead in terms of what we're looking at. But what would be even more suggestive is if we actually found evidence of virus. Forget all these indirect immune response stuff, things that might be suggestive, but we want to find the virus. And in that sense, actually, I mean, a lot of people have found evidence of persistent virus in both patients with and without long COVID. So they found that a number of patients have viral RNA that's secreted in the stool for nine months after infection has passed, et cetera. And, you know, we're actually doing a a subset of that kind of research ourselves where we're testing stool samples from long COVID patients and comparing it with healthy COVID convalescents to identify what percentage of them might actually have viral persistence in the stool as well. In addition to that, there have also been reports of autopsy studies that have found viral persistence in extra respiratory tissues 462 days after an initial infection in long COVID patients specifically. And I myself have been testing antigen positive from the nasopharynx for five months now, solid, it'll go up and down, up and down. Like sometimes it'll be a little bit more positive. Sometimes it'll be a little less. I never test PCR positive. This viral persistence situation is not um, a new question. It's just something that was surprising to a lot of virologists, specifically because of the type of virus we're talking about. Uh, you wouldn't have expected that with a coronavirus, but that is indeed what a lot of people have found. So I was just going to say for our listeners, you've got long COVID yourself. And you've had viral persistence because you're immunosuppressed. Is that right? 
Well, you know, that's one possibility. I don't know why I have viral persistence. <laughs> Patients have it without being immunosuppressed. It could have something to do with the organ niche in the body that the virus might target. Some people who have GI symptoms seem to have a lot more viral persistence in the gut. Some people who may have a headache and neurologic symptoms may have some viral persistence in a place that's either CNS adjacent or within the CNS itself. I have no idea. These are just hypothetical things to consider. Yeah. But I am immunosuppressed. I do have an autoimmune disease. And you had the um, autoimmune condition prior to contracting COVID. That's right. Mm -hmm. You were aware of it. Yes. So what was the other things that you found? So the next thing that I'll say is that we wanted to look at memory responses. So what's really important about memory T cells? So one of the things that we find with infections that you may get once, then you clear and you don't really get severely infected again, is that they induce a good memory T cell response, right? And so I think a lot of people were hypothesizing that that's what's going to happen with SARS-CoV-2 as well. Yeah. You would think that, you know, a lot of patients are getting severely infected. That's going to induce high level stimulation of memory T cells. It's going to induce a really great long lasting memory T cell response. Because after all, they did actually see something like that with the original SARS-CoV-1, the epidemic strain from 2002-2003 in China. In contrast, that's not what we necessarily see at all. And that's one of the reasons why patients are getting infected and reinfected and reinfected with the same strain, if not a very similar strain. That being said, when we were looking at our patient cohort, so again, I had probably about... 60 long COVID patients who are specifically exhibiting neurologic symptoms. And I had about uh, 20 to 25 healthy COVID convalescents that I compared this to. When we actually looked at the memory CD8 T cell response to viral proteins, they were much higher in the healthy convalescents than they were in the long COVID patients. So that was something that we kind of saw again and again and again with different viral proteins. Whether it was spike, nucleocapsid, membrane, it did not matter. The, in general, what we found was that the memory T cell response was higher right, in healthy convalescents versus long COVID patients. So that was one sign that, okay, this virus is not inducing good T cell memory. And that could suggest a persistent infection again. Does it suggest that there's a reasonable T-cell memory response in the healthy convalescents and that it's something that's different about the people who go on to develop long COVID who are not having that healthy memory T-cell response? Maybe. It's kind of nuanced. It's not necessarily that the people who have long COVID have some kind of difference in their underlying genetics or something surrounding their immune responses. It's more that in my hypothetical opinion, uh, these patients who have long COVID, some of them may have a persistent infection. If you have a persistent infection, it can limit the development of T-cell memory. It's possible that, okay, some of these people who are healthy COVID convalescents completely cleared the infection, and then some of these people who are long COVID patients didn't. On the other hand, long COVID is also incredibly heterogeneous. And we know that perhaps not every patient is having long COVID because of a persistent infection. Some of them, it could be, you know, induction of autoimmune sequelae, which is something that I'm also actively studying. I have some preliminary data that is very suggestive that there's a huge autoimmune component to that. And then there are all these other theories about vascular uh, abnormalities, microclots, et cetera, which I'm not an expert at. I'm an immunologist. But when I say that there's a possibility of a persistent infection, it's not that that's the only possible explanation. But do you think it falls broadly into those two main camps of the viral persistence and the autoimmunity? I personally favor that view, but I think that I'm also biased. 
as an immunologist. So, you know, take that as a caveat too. It's the lens with which you are looking at the disease, which is something that Dr. Alex Meyer, who we talked to, was saying. He's looking at it through an endothelial lens and you're looking at it through an, you know, an immunologist's lens. Yeah. One of the very important things about your study that I don't know if it's necessarily the same in, in all of the studies, but you specifically talk about healthy convalescence as your control group. And that was just one thing that I noticed because I don't necessarily think that all of the other studies have been comparing COVID convalescence as their control group. I think a lot of people, they're not necessarily knowing whether their control group are post-COVID or not, as in whether they have had the infection. So I do think that's a key thing here and that you know that all of these people have had confirmed infection. Yeah, 100%. I think that that's very perceptive of you to notice. I agree. I think that that's one of the limitations of many of the studies that are coming out. Part of the way to do good science is to have good control groups, right? And I think that any of us going into it, ideally, we would say, okay, we're going to have multiple control groups to compare to our variable groups. So right, the, and, and if, if long COVID is our variable, I mean, it's incredibly heterogeneous, and it has a lot of different presentations. And you know, what we want is to have two different control groups, one of unexposed individuals, but one control group that's completely recovered after COVID. I think that that's, you know, really important to do. We did absolutely try to do that. Um, right now, I will admit that the limitations at the time were that the sample size for that healthy convalescent group were kind of small. Is that because not many people end up healthy after COVID? <laughs> Well, no, actually, it's 70-30. It's 70% no, probably end up healthy, right? But the problem is that, you know, if we're going to design a good control group, they have to have the exact same exposure. For me, the problem was that at the time, vaccines were coming and rolling out so quickly in the Chicago area. And I was only comparing unvaccinated groups. And while we could recruit a whole lot of patients from our clinic very, very easily, I had to go out into the community and personally <laughs> recruit the healthy COVID convalescent group. And that was a bit more difficult. Um, so right now, our paper is in the second round of revisions. So I'm in the process of trying to increase that healthy convalescent group from vaccinated individuals, which is actually much easier to do. It's fascinating, though, that that adds another level, doesn't it? It does. To your control groups in any study, you now have to compare uh, COVID positive versus COVID positive plus vaccine, minus vaccine, plus three vaccines. Yeah. So I have multiple studies running right now uh, to that point. Uh, I have one study that's completed, which was basically looking at longitudinal vaccine responses from the first uh, vaccine course of mRNA vaccines, because that was mainly what was available here, over six months in long COVID versus healthy convalescent versus unexposed control. And then I have another study that is now also finished getting all the samples for, which was for the booster study, what happens to these same three cohorts before and after boost. Um, so yeah, you know, we're, we're kind of, yeah, <laughs> moving in a lot of different directions there. And that was another big thing in this study, a big area in this study, the response to the vaccine in long COVID patients. What did you find there? What was really interesting about this was we tracked the immune response of these patients um, in the same three cohorts over the course of four months. So we had a pre-vaccination uh, time point. Um, so none of these patients had ever been vaccinated with any kind of SARS-CoV-2 vaccine before. And we followed them every three weeks after each dose. And then we tracked them for two months after that. So a total of four months from the initial date of vaccination. And what we found was that while the antibody response was pretty similar between between the groups, 
the T cell response in terms of interferon gamma production to spike protein, which is the antigen that is in the vaccine itself, was very divergent at four months. So at three months, there was a convergence of this response so that even though the long COVID patients had a very elevated response after the second vaccination compared with the other groups, there was a convergence in this response at three months after vaccination. However, what was really interesting was that there was a significant inflation Inflation is the way that we put it, like of the T cell response in the long COVID patients at four months post-vaccination, whereas similar to what other groups have shown that the T cell response in both healthy convalescents and healthy controls went back down to baseline by four months. This is not inconsistent with other people's data. The difference, as you mentioned before, Emily, is that we were looking at long COVID patients separate from healthy COVID convalescents. And that's when we see this divergence. What does that mean in real terms? If we're going to try to make a reasoned hypothesis based on the data, I think that this points towards a persistent infection. Why would a response go up or stay the same? A response has to go up in in the T-cell compartment or stay the same if there was a persistent stimulation of those specific T-cells. So a way to do that is with something called antigen persistence. So one thing that we know about the mRNA vaccines in general, and this is less so true for the viral vectored vaccines such as AstraZeneca or Janssen, but for the mRNA vaccines in particular, what happens is that there's RNA that encodes a viral protein and that RNA gets degraded within a few hours within your cells. So it's a very short-term burst of a stimulation. So that antigen, that protein is not probably going to persist for very long. So what, what, what does that translate into? It can induce really great antibody responses, but the data has shown that T-cell responses induced by mRNA vaccines are short-lived and not necessarily very robust. Memory B cells, awesome. Memory T cells, not so much. What we found here was that instead of completely decreasing to baseline, we see an enhancement of this response after four months. The most logical way that that could happen is because there's a persistent stimulation with viral antigen. So it's possible that the spike protein is still there. It might be in a different kind of tissue pointing towards a possibility of a viral persistence. Okay. So wait, they get the vaccine. Yeah. You have the same T-cell response in both the healthy and the long COVID patients. And then after four months, the long COVID patients have an enhancement, which I assume is an increase in T-cell response. Yeah, it's an increased T-cell response. Was that an increase from their ba- from their baseline? When we did the statistics, it's not really an increase from their baseline. The point is that with the healthy COVID convalescence, the response goes down. It goes down. Right. At, at three months after vaccination, there's a contraction in the response. And that's something that we know happens in general after antigenic stimulation. There's going to be a contraction in the effector T-cell response. And that's something that's normal after vaccination, after infection. It's something that we observe. What's different about this is that inflation at four months, because that contraction should not result in an enhancement of the response at a later time, unless there is another immune insult or stimulation. And that's going to come from another infection or an exposure, or in this case, my hypothesis, a persisting antigenic stimulation. And, and does that suggest that the um, that persistent stimulation has been somehow kept at bay and then re-peaks after, after that three-month period of suppression from the vaccine? Or, or why does it happen at, at that point, do you think? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. Um, I think that anything that I would say at this point is speculation, but I will say that there's a general inflammatory milieu that exists in a lot of these long COVID patients that we don't see in the healthy COVID convalescents. And for example, I'll, I'll just give you some data from our clinic. So there are certain clinical measures of inflammation that you can test from plasma samples in patients, right? So I think that you've probably heard of C-reactive protein, you've heard mm-hmm. of ANA antibodies and all of that stuff. So there's a lot of, um, I think, hand-waving, in my opinion, out there saying that, oh, long COVID patients don't have elevated levels of these which is not true. Um, and, and I'll say that because what we found was that out of 318 patients that we tested for you know, markers of this, 44% had highly elevated ANA and CRP levels, highly elevated. And I was using a conservative marker for classifying something as elevated. I didn't take a, you know, a CRP level of 10 as elevated. I limited it to 12 and above. And similar with ANA. If we add in another marker of inflammation, the erythrocyte sedimentation rate or ESR, those numbers go from 44% to much higher than that. I just haven't quantified it. So I, can, I, you know, I don't want to give you random numbers. But there were a huge plurality of patients, at least I would say, who had elevated markers of inflammation at the time of their clinic visit. And the average time that these patients came in for a clinic visit was seven and a half months after initial infection. So this was not something that you could say, oh, your acute infection created a elevated inflammatory milieu and that's why. No, it's, it's real. If I were to say, you know, why might this inflation and vaccine-induced response happen? Well, it could be a lot of things, but one of them could be a persistent inflammatory state that's occurring in these patients. Uh, Another issue could be persistent antigen, as I mentioned before. Yeah, there are a lot of things to investigate further with respect to that. Sorry, one more point. I would say that vaccination itself is going to induce an inflammatory state, right? And it's a good thing. It has to, because otherwise vaccines aren't going to work. But that being said, if you already had elevated inflammation to begin with, and you may have a persistent antigenic stimulation to begin with because of a persistent infection, then when you get the vaccine, what happens? In some of these patients, they do feel worse. I'm not saying don't get a vaccine. Get the vaccine. Vaccines save lives. I got vaccinated, boosted, whatever. But one, they're not going to help you cure long COVID. (laughs) And two, we should take seriously the reports, the case reports of patients who say, okay, I did feel worse after vaccination. Yeah, I did. Like, I did. Yeah, we, I did. we both did. Okay. After the booster, I was terrible. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, we, what was your booster, Noreen? Was it Pfizer? I had well? all, all, yeah, all, all three Pfizer. Pfizer. Yeah. Whereas I had two AZ, but then it was awful reactions to both. We do still say everyone needs to go and get vaccinated. Yes. Although some medical doctors, like my cardiologist, were saying that call me next time before you have your next jab and I'll tell you whether you should have it or not yeah yeah and I have been recommended not to get it that's smart I think it's smart the risk analysis that you have here for the first two shots three shots is going to be very different if you every four months have to get another booster shot that's going to have a huge impact on your immune response and we need to be very careful about just recommending that willy-nilly without doing any testing have you seen in your studies um a worsening of our t-cells with every infection do you mean every infection or every vaccination because i can't say that i have a systematic study that's going uh looking at patients with repeated infections i was meaning about infection rather than vaccination but in a similar way to your describing the booster 
finding it harder is the body doing the same thing with repeated infection with less of a T-cell response every time we're infected? I'm not sure. I, I can't say that I've specifically looked at that. We don't have a huge number of patients that I can say have a documented first, second, third infections and reinfection. Part of that is because a lot of people aren't testing. I don't know how it is in the UK, but here I think that everybody has just decided that we don't care anymore. So COVID's fine now, apparently. Exactly. Exactly. So that that's part of the problem. But I will say that in terms of T-cell response, if I were to completely be speculative, it didn't really induce a good T-cell response in the first place. So I can't imagine that it's going to do much worse. In general, you're going to get reinfected. You're just going to get re- I mean, it happens with the common cold, right? If you have kids and your kid gets infected with the same strain over and over again. I mean, part of that is kids don't develop good T-cell memory until later on in life. Adults get reinfected with the same common cold coronavirus strains over and over again throughout life as well. And that's because they don't induce a good T-cell response. Now, the difference is that with common cold coronaviruses, they don't have the same kinds of virulence profiles as a SARS coronavirus. They're pretty benign. You can get reinfected over and over again and you're fine. It's just a rhinitis. It's just a cold. It's just whatever. But SARS is causing long COVID. That's where the big difference, the key difference is. And do you think there's only that T-cell degradation in the people who have the long COVID response? Or do you think that, that we will ultimately see that across the board? Yeah, that's the great question. I don't know the answer to that. It seems possible that people who were a healthy convalescent after the first infection or even the second infection, if they keep on getting reinfected with the SARS coronavirus, it's more likely that they're going to develop long COVID. So this whole 30% rate that we're converging towards may become a lot higher depending on what we do next. It already seems quite high, doesn't it? I know. 30% is kind of a consensus in the middle, right? Some people are saying 50%. Some people are saying 15. We're going with 30. I mean, I and I don't think that it's quite far off. Well, when you're talking about the numbers of people that got infected or will in- get infected, then that's a huge population crisis. Yeah, it is. I think that some people are getting over long COVID with time. We've seen that in our own clinic patients. But if you asked about um, numbers, I would say at best it's 50-50. So if we have, you know, in the U.S., I think they're estimating 25 million people right now with long COVID. If it's 50-50 that people get better, that still leaves 12 and a half million patients that are having these persistent symptoms for years afterwards. That's, yeah. I think you referenced in the article that you sent that there was a similar response to to MERS that lasted 3.5 years. That's correct. MERS and SARS-1. Was that a sort of average or was it that there's not really anyone who had persistent symptoms after 3.5 years? I was just interested in that because I'm wondering how long it's going to take us to get well. <laughs> well, don't, don't ask me about MERS because I've done some reading. Uh, up to 15 years, I've heard. Yeah. MERS was an interesting one because its fatality, case fatality rate was so high. If you survived, it was only 50-50. And even at that point, significant number of those patients had long COVID. But to your question, I don't know how long it would take. It probably depends on the individual because that's already what we're seeing, these heterogeneous trajectories depending on the individual. And sometimes it's based on if they were really healthy before, but sometimes it's really not. Some of these patients have comorbidities and they're getting well just fine. And some of these patients were completely healthy. I think that we need to learn a lot more before we can answer that kind of question. But I also think that there are probably more therapeutic avenues to treat long COVID than we might think. And also because it's so huge, we've actually got a lot more people working on it than 
than because yes. I'm not saying that MERS was uh, was not a big deal, but the the numbers of people that were infected was n- not comparable to this. Absolutely. I think that's a huge point. When you have a case fatality rate that high with MERS or even with SARS-1, SARS-1 had a case fatality rate of 10%, then it's not going to be able to spread as well. And that's one of the reasons why we have so many people infected with SARS-2 versus these other coronaviruses. Because it's not killing us. Yes. Which is a positive thing. It is, but it's good. <laughs> it's good. That part's good. Just comparing your two hypotheses, one would be viral persistence and the other autoimmunity. Do you have a better chance of recovering from long COVID if it's viral persistence? I mean, autoimmunity sounds like a lifetime sentence. You know, it can, but autoimmune disease is very heterogeneous in and of itself. And recovery trajectories and remission, you know, I mean, sometimes autoimmunity can resolve itself. That happens with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, for example, often. The thing about autoimmune disease is that it can be very easy to manage depending on what you have. So I have rheumatoid arthritis. I have had it for years um, and I'm also an immunologist. So it's oddly like, you know, I'm able to study my own responses to both. I love the way you've been able to do that with the autoimmune, with your COVID. You're a great human guinea pig. Exactly. You know, old school science. That's what I'm trying to do. I will say something interesting that I've observed in my own case is that I've been on tocilizumab, an IL-6 monoclonal antibody for my RA before I got COVID. And I think that that had a big influence on why my symptoms were so mild during acute covid and why my long COVID is kind of not that bad. And the reason I say this is because, well, one, I have data. I mean, I basically had taken samples, blood samples from myself, pre and post vaccination, infection, booster and Paxlovid. I've been able to kind of track my own T cell and uh, antibody responses over time. But the other thing symptomatically that I would say is that I had taken Paxlovid to kind of test this hypothesis that, okay, my long COVID symptoms are due to a persistent infection. I felt quite a bit better. I had no persistent symptoms about three weeks after I had finished um, or after I had started Paxlovid. So what were your symptoms? Just, I don't think we've said that. Okay. Yes. My symptoms were, um, I had bad headaches and, you know, near the occipital region. Where's the occipital region? In the back, like, yeah, neck and where it meets your head. I had issues with a lot of sleep disturbance and fatigue. I, I think we are all very familiar with what COVID fatigue is like. And so, you know, it just feels like a truck hit you. And so that would, you know, go up and down, up and down. And I would also consistently, when my symptoms were worse, test more positive by antigen test. So the line was a little bit more robust when I had worse symptoms. And when I had better symptoms, the line was a little bit less robust using the same test. I know this is not very scientific. I apologize, but it's what I had. It I think you've done quite a lot of science. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but uh, yeah, so then I felt really good after the three weeks, all my symptoms had disappeared. And I finally tested negative by antigen test for the first time in five months. And then the symptoms came back. How long between stopping taking the Paxlovid and the symptoms recurring? Did you take a five-day course? Five-day course. And um, symptoms started recurring probably 22 days after my last dose. Um, So that was interesting. And then I tested again. And then I tested antigen positive again. And then, you know, I decided after a few weeks, I was like, okay, you know what? Maybe it's because I'm the problem because I'm on immunosuppressants. Maybe the answer is I get off of my tocilizumab. And then I allow my own immune response to clear the virus completely unexpectedly. I, after about 10 days of being off of my tocilizumab, 
I had worse long COVID symptoms than I'd ever had. In fact, I had a new long COVID symptom, which was um, brain fog. I had never had that before. I had never been unable to multitask uh, or feel like my thoughts weren't moving as quickly or being able to put things together. Uh, you know, I, I, I hear the patients talking about it all the time. I didn't know how it felt like personally. Uh, and then I did. And I was like, oh, my God, this is terrifying. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to do this work. I can't do this work without my brain being intact. And so I got back on the tocilizumab. And within a few days to a week, I was back to being able to think straight, even if the rest of my long COVID symptoms weren't completely gone. And so this is something I'm actively writing a case report on uh, because I, I've taken samples pre and post all of these different interventions. And you're quite familiar with this case. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. So interesting, though. So in terms of what your immune system is doing there, when you come off your immunosuppressants and then get worse long COVID symptoms, is that suggestive that your long COVID symptoms are autoimmune driven? The only thing that I can say is that IL-6 is a contributor to these COVID symptoms. I just want to go back a little bit. There are very different T cells that we, our body has, and people are talking a lot about the um, is it CD4 and CD8? Yeah, you look at both in your paper, I think. Yeah. Can you explain about how the different T cells work and how these two are quite important in long COVID? Yes. Just to give a bit of context is that a lot of people are comparing long COVID with the HIV path. People are postulating a lot of things, but and then talking about treatments that could help with dealing with these two rogue T cells. I think I understand why people are comparing uh, long COVID to HIV, because there is a certain level of immune insult that keeps on persisting. But the nature of these immune insults are quite different. In HIV, what happens is that the virus can infect your CD4 T cells and kill them actively. If you look at your immune response, your adaptive immune T cell response as having two compartments, a CD4 compartment and a CD8 compartment, HIV will get rid of an entire compartment. So you're only left with CD8. That's not what's happening with SARS-CoV-2. It's not actively killing your lymphocytes. There are some studies that have suggested that there are lower lymphocyte counts in patients with long COVID, but I think that that's very heterogeneous and that's not necessarily what I've seen. Some patients do, some patients don't. It's just very up and down. But what is happening is almost what looks like a a reprogramming of functions in these different compartments. And that can happen because of the virus inducing different kinds of signals in these two different T cells. So in a very basic sense, CD4 T cells are looked at as having a lot of different functions. They can engage in antibody help. So then they help B cells produce antibody. They can also be involved in lowering inflammation. These are CD4 T regs. They're also involved in memory responses, et cetera. So they have a a lot of different subsets, a lot of uh, functional heterogeneity. I guess dogmatically, CD8 T cells have been looked at as more having a cytotoxic presence. So their focus has been to kill infected cells. With viral infection, CD8 T cells are quite important because they will basically identify a virally infected cell and produce the kinds of chemicals that are needed to kill it. But CD8 T cells also do a lot of other things. They're not quite as, you know, simple-minded as people might think. They have their own kind of memory response. 
And they're also involved in signaling. And there are a lot of CD4 um, functions that some CD8 cells can do too, depending on the infection. What I'm mostly seeing with the underlying T-cell response in long COVID patients is kind of a, um, a disturbance in the CD8 response more so than the CD4. The CD4 I see in the antibody help, right? That's that's very clear. It's a blaring signal that the CD4 T cells that help B cells make antibodies, those are functionally programmed a little bit differently in long COVID patients versus healthy convalescents. For the rest of it, the majority of what I see is in the CD8 memory T cell compartment. And that altered CD8 response, you suggest gives an altered cytokine response. Is that right? Yeah. Mostly what I'm seeing is that the alterations in cytokine production after um, stimulation with viral proteins is um, happening in the CD8 memory T cell compartment, not just any CD8 cells, but memory T cells specifically. And there is a part of this that's really uh, linked to IL-6 because one of the kind of smaller figures in uh, panels in figure four was basically finding that stimulation of CD8 T effector memory cells with spike protein induced a lot more IL-6 production in long COVID patients than it did in healthy COVID convalescents. So more IL-6 in long COVID, less IL-6 in healthy convalescents. That's something that we found from CD8 T cells specifically. So an IL-6 inhibitor would be good. <laughs> Right. Noreen is right. So then that's one of the key points to take from this is, you know, we should look at IL-6 more because it's possible that inhibiting the activity of IL-6 could help with symptoms, right? So then some of these points, they keep on converging to the same place. Is it viral persistence? Is it IL-6? Is it, you know, et cetera. The other thing that I'll say about IL-6 is that it's not a simple cytokine. Like there are some simple cytokines like TNF-alpha. They have basically one although I bet some immunologists would like really take issue with my saying that. But um, <laughs> in general, that's that's kind of how I view it. But IL-6 is a kind of cytokine that has different effects depending on what you're looking at. For example, IL-6 is really good at inducing CD4 T cell responses. It's really bad at inducing CD8. It, ba it basically blocks CD8 T cell responses while enhancing CD4. Like it has a differential function depending on the cell type that you're you're talking about, the CD, you know, the, the T cell type that you're talking about. And so in that way, given the fact that we're seeing less T cell memory response um, to SARS-CoV-2 antigens and long COVID patients, enhanced IL-6 production, but not so much of a disturbance in the CD4 response. Okay, we could potentially say that maybe IL-6 from CD8 T cells is creating some kind of pathologic condition in long COVID. But is treating it with an IL-6 inhibitor the same actually as treating the symptoms in the way that we're all sort of being symptomatically treated at the moment, as in it's suppressing something that shouldn't have been overactivated in the first place? Is it like addressing it at, at still too far down the line for it to for it to remove it completely rather than just being simply a treatment or a sort of symptomatic treatment? That's a great question. And so I think that's a possibility because, I mean, again, it all depends on what the cause is. If the cause is viral persistence in at least a subset of patients, those patients need to be identified. We need to develop novel antivirals that are going to treat like specific aspects of the viral life cycle that are involved in SARS-CoV-2 replication, as opposed to repurposing other drugs, which is what actually Paxlovid did. We was repurposing a SARS-1 drug 
for SARS-2, which is one of the reasons why Pfizer could get it out so quickly. Although the the target that it's hitting is very similar in SARS-2, so it has an effect. But then the question that, you know, I think anybody would logically ask is, is that why there's so much viral reactivation after Paxlovid? One, because the treatment course isn't long enough, and two, because they're repurposing a drug that was supposed to be used for something else in the first place. That's one thing. So, I mean, you know, if you're going to be asking about how do we treat the cause, if the cause is viral persistence, obviously, let's kill the virus, right? That. But, but you don't necessarily think that the current antivirals are the way to go because they currently just treat a single aspect of... Uh, of it. Is that right? Is that what your your view of the sort of Paxlovid and things is? That they're not a, a sufficiently broad? Can you explain that? Yes, yes, absolutely. So this is kind of getting back to what you were asking about HIV. This is where I see a kind of similarity. I mean, one of the ways that HIV is actually under control is by using antiviral cocktails. So the way that they have done this is to give patients a tailored cocktail of drugs that target different aspects of the life cycle simultaneously. And in a way, that might be what we need to do for SARS-CoV-2. Paxlovid, which targets the main protease of SARS-CoV-2, is one drug. That drug is only targeting this protein made by the virus after all of the other proteins are made. It's basically targeting a very late aspect of the viral life cycle. What if we combined that with something that targets RNA replication or with something that targets capsid assembly or with, you know, et cetera. So there are all of these multiple components of the viral life cycle that if you target all of them at once, then maybe it's possible that you can actually get rid of the virus entirely, as opposed to getting this whole, you know, low level replication, viral reactivation after one five day course of Paxlovid. That's one hypothesis. Are there drugs out there that can kill a virus? Like, completely or does does it rely on reducing the virus to a certain level and then our own immune system just sweeps up the last remnants yeah that's you know mostly uh it, it can go both ways it's kind of just like antibiotics there's you know this concept of bacteriostatic versus bactericidal that concept can also come back to antivirals as well though it's a little bit more difficult because it's actually a lot more difficult because an antibiotic can target a bacteria and leave your cell alone but an antiviral, there's a lot of research that needs to go into making an antiviral because it has to get inside your cell and not affect your cellular function while affecting viral replication. And so those are the kinds of things that pharmaceutical companies and research teams have to be very, very, very careful about. But yeah, it is possible to kind of kill a virus, but most likely it's going to go with what you said, Noreen, which is to basically be virostatic and then, you know, allow for your immune response to clear it. Because the good news is, in general, viruses induce a much more potent signal to the immune response to kill an infected cell versus a bacterial infection. What does that mean if we've developed some kind of autoimmune issue? Yeah, so that's that's a very different thing. Um, uh Again, that's something that I have another project that I'm studying in long COVID patients. I love how many are very busy. (laughs) And you have long COVID. So hats off to you. Thank you. (laughs) But but it's a really good question, right? I think we're all asking that. And I and um as somebody with an autoimmune disease, all I can say is that we can manage it better or we can manage it worse. And, you know, it's a lifelong thing. You're right. But in some people, that remission is also lifelong. In some people, there's a resolution of this kind of autoimmune syndrome instead of actually having been an autoimmune disease. And I think that there are a lot of ways in which that can only be found out after treating it or that can be found out after time. I think that we just need a lot more research to, to find that out. But I will say that 
managing an autoimmune disease over a long period of time doesn't have to be that bad. I mean, I prefer my RA over long COVID any day. (laughs) (laughs) If you have to choose. (laughs) If I have to choose. But what I mean, though, is if if we've got an autoimmune condition, does it mean that our our immune system is not going to be able to come in and clear up the clear up the remnants? No, not necessarily. It could mean that you don't even have remnants. And it could mean that whatever reprogramming was done when you were infected is now kind of changing into an autoimmune syndrome. Because you put it into the two separate camps. Yeah. But you kind of need to know which camp you're in before you decide whether to take Paxlovid or or start an IL-6 inhibitor. I think that you have mentioned somewhere that you might potentially have the ability to develop biomarkers for 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 this. Is it is it just biomarkers for long covid or is it biomarkers to separate it into sort of what version of long covid you have? As far as finding out if a long covid patient has any kind of autoimmune sequelae, there are long established clinical diagnostic markers to figure that out. Except they're not. Okay, let me explain that. <laughs> So part of it is that a lot of, at least in the US, I can't say what the NHS does or anywhere else, but I can tell you that like the way the American College of Rheumatology asks to look at a clinical diagnostic panel is to say, okay, do you have like certain kinds of anti-cardiolipin antibodies? Do you have ANA? Do you have high C-reactive protein? No? Okay, you don't have any problems. And that's pretty much crap when it comes to autoimmune disease, especially when we're talking about something as heterogeneous as what we see with long COVID, because it's one, ignoring a huge amount of autoantibodies in their panel. Their their standard panel is not taking into account a lot of different autoantibodies that may be directed against different kinds of autoantigens. So they're only looking at certain very, very common ones, but also they're not looking at all the ones we know exist in acute COVID. Like there's anti-interferon antibodies. There are anti-neuronal, you know, G-protein coupled receptor antibodies. They're all all of these things they're not looking at. But the other part, which I always focus on is you're not looking at any part of the T cell response, right? And so what I found in some of our patients is that there, I'm going to like, just give you one example. So I'm writing a grant right now for um, investigating how patients who have high inflammatory markers actually have a very robust T cell um, response to autoantigens that are associated with either rheumatoid arthritis or uh, lupus or with scleroderma or any of these other kinds of rheumatic diseases. And what we found was that there was one patient that I'm thinking of right now who had completely normal C-reactive protein, completely normal ANA, but had a very high erythrocyte sedimentation rate, so high ESR, which means that they had a lot of inflammation, but it wasn't reflected in these other more specific clinical diagnostic markers. And when I actually put his cells through an assay, he had very high level reactivity to the autoantigen um, associated with lupus and RA. So in the T-cell compartment, which nobody looks at, there could be just kind of undetected level of autoreactivity that a doctor or clinician just might not know to, to find. Most people that have long COVID have had a very mild, in our experience, which of course is anecdotal, but have had very mild experience of acute COVID. Is it because our body is underreacting to the virus or and not clearing it properly? Could that be one of the reasons that we see so many people that have had mild COVID or the mild experience of COVID going on to get long COVID? Yeah, that's a distinct possibility. I mean, I am not a virologist, but um, 
Yeah, I'm an immunologist, but there are a lot of proteins that are encoded by this virus that we don't fully know the functions of. Well, we know about a lot of viral infections, even the ones that are really benign, like adenovirus. They encode these proteins called immune evasion proteins, and they can actually like directly interfere with the function of the T-cell response. So adenovirus, for example, has a small protein that basically limits the ability for cells to signal to T-cells that, hey, we're infected. We don't know if little proteins in the SARS-CoV-2 genome that play a similar kind of role in terms of immune evasion, which may be more inducing what you said, like a low-level infection that's not going to allow the immune response to clear it. That's a possibility. You know, another possibility is viral reprogramming of immune cell function. I mean, all of these are really not something that uh, virologists considered or doctors or anyone really, because you don't think that a small RNA plus strand RNA virus is going to do all of these things. With HIV, you know that it encodes a protein that's going to allow it to integrate into the genome and then do all sorts of things to your cells, um, in addition to kill infected cells like the CD4 T cells. SARS-CoV-2 doesn't necessarily have anything that stands out at you that that's going to necessarily do that. So all these functions, these long-term lingering things are really a surprise to a lot of people, which is one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to study because we have to kind of get past our dogma first before we actually look at the data. Well, one of the big handicaps is is that so much of the COVID experience or doctor's uh, research has been on hospitalized cases. I agree. So that makes it very limiting. I agree. I mean, uh, I think 75 to 80% of our cases are not hospitalized. And that's that's reflected in the paper. So yeah, but that's actually isn't that similar to the percentage of people with long COVID? I think 75% are non hospitalized. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. When I hear you talking about submitting a grant application, you're submitting the grant applications, people are saying that some of the these papers are requiring being sent back six times and then you're getting an additional uh, clinician work added to them each time it gets it gets reviewed I mean that's a huge toll on your time in addition to presumably your everyday work of looking at the actual data and material yeah yeah when you've got long COVID that's quite must be exhausting well, I mean, I've always had RA, so it's like, <laughs> it's just once one way. So, I mean, I think it would be my perspective is that I kind of, I have some familiarity with dealing with a long-term <laughs> chronic condition. You just kind of roll with the punches, but, but no, I think that I've been in science for some time and I've never seen anything like this. I've not been in this kind of situation before. I think there's a, yeah, it's, it's really tough to submit grants and then, you know, basically, We have an NIH, the National Institutes of Health, that fund almost all academic research in this country, right? And they don't have a single study section that's long COVID specific. So study sections are the groups of peer reviewers that are going to come and review your grants, right? So even if you have NIH officials who are going to receive your grants, the people who review it are your peer scientists. If the NIH does not make peer review study sections that are specific for long COVID, you're going to have people with all different kinds of expertise coming in here and reviewing your grant in a way that is in through their own lens, right? That has been a huge problem. Um, We also don't have specific funding streams for long COVID, even though they're acting like we do. There are a lot of reasons why that's not actually the case. 
And then the third thing is that it's incredibly political. So you've read my paper, you've seen that I'm arguing that maybe viral persistence is a problem. Maybe, you know, all of these 30% of patients who are getting long COVID are going to have it for a long time and it's going to affect their lives for the foreseeable future if we don't do something about it. That's not something the political, you know, messaging machine wants to hear. No, perhaps if they just ignore it, it'll just not be there. Exactly. Um, but that's that's absolutely fascinating because what is there anything that is, apart from the active COVID itself, is there anything that's comparable in size now? No, I mean, not at the moment. I think that a lot of uh, scientists from the old guard who went through the HIV epidemic, they're saying that this reminds them a lot of that. They're but saying it still that- still wasn't this a similar number of people. It wasn't no. between 20 and 30% of your it's not between 20 and 30% of the population, is it? It's between 20 and 30% of the population who have be- previously been infected. But I don't imagine there are very many people who have managed to avoid being infected. Absolutely. Absolutely. The difference is that HIV was killing you and this one isn't. So, I mean, there was a mobilization that was happening. I, depending on who you ask, I agree. I agree. Um, <laughs> but. I mean, going back to the money, didn't the NIH just say that they almost, was it $470 million that they were giving to long COVID research? Yeah, let me explain to you what happened to that $470 million. So first off, that was supposed to be $1 billion. It was supposed to be. uh, And that money was split between what's called intramural research and extramural research. Intramural research is what happens within the NIH campus. Extramural research is what happens everywhere else. So like, you know, we would only get extramural research funds. We, for example, I'm just going to give you our example, applied for funding through that recover study to establish a long COVID research center. We have seen at this point, 1300 long COVID patients. We have a comprehensive COVID center. We have a research infrastructure that, you know, I've just described to you, et cetera. We're well positioned to carry out this work. We didn't get the funding. Um, There was a group that did in Chicago, a hospital system that did, who came to us after they got the funding to say, hey, We don't know how to enroll patients. We don't know how to do this work. We don't have the research infrastructure. We don't have the expertise. Can you subcontract with us to basically do the work? So basically, I would be getting the samples from them, doing all of the work, analyzing all of the data, but the money wouldn't be coming to us. It would be coming in directly to us through them, maybe. And even that hasn't come through yet. You know, there's no urgency and there's no infrastructure. Without without pushing you to mention names, I think we've heard previously from someone that there are some of these big name health organizations that have been given a lot of the NIH funding. Is that is that the case? Yeah, you know, it depends on who you talk to, because actually our group is quite large. I mean, I will say that, you know, I'm in a very privileged position to work in, in the institution that I'm in. And we were beat out by a smaller institution, actually. Oh. But the reason we were beat out was a good one, because the NIH was prioritizing a diverse patient population. They wanted people of different income statuses, etc. And, you know, racial backgrounds. And in our hospital system, unfortunately, that's just not the case. Like, you know, there are a lot of single ethnicity and single SES kind of uh, groups that come through. And so, but the problem was that they didn't evaluate whether that hospital system or that research group actually had the ability to carry out the experiments. They have seen maybe 50 neuro long COVID patients so far. We've seen 1,350. But but you're not also you're also not wrong. I mean, a lot of the people who are getting the vast majority of the money are like, you know, the big name yeah, that's what I was meaning by the sort of big and not necessarily in size, but that profile in, in terms yeah. of their profiles. 
That's a hundred percent true. And you know, I'm a nobody and I, you know, it's just like, we're kind of, we think. Thank you. Much appreciated. We've spoken about this throughout the podcast. She has long COVID. She also has an autoimmune condition. And we've talked before about how that how that lived experience seems to really, really be informative to the medical professionals and scientists who are working in long COVID or who have the experience from previous chronic conditions. I just feel like she approaches it with a nuance that perhaps you don't get from people who don't have the personal experience of it. Yeah. And she's also in this unique position where she's been able to experiment on herself. <laughs> it's in really good old fashioned scientific research. <laughs> she was so, she was so upbeat considering all that she's going through. She was just such a positive person. Yeah. And I think, you know, having lived with rheumatoid arthritis for most of her life, that she has this kind of resilience that we see with MECFS patients as well, that they kind of, yes, we're chronically ill, but here we can, we can achieve this. And she's obviously an overachiever because she's doing such remarkable work. But very interesting that she did say she would choose to have rheumatoid arthritis over long COVID any day. Yeah. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.